And as the uh, confusion spread over why the chronic fatigue syndrome was coined, and people lost track of the original evidence, the scare went right out of it. Everybody who read about the Lake Tahoe incident and knew of our in, uh, evidence was very scared of it. They took it extremely serious. It took about six years before the memory of what had happened to fade to the point where people began thinking of chronic fatigue syndrome as nothing more as uh, a vague problem of middle-aged women who uh, can't get their life together. Yeah, it was very interesting how the CDC managed to promote a rumor that this was a psychological illness. When, if you examine the Holmes 1988 chronic fatigue syndrome definition, it very clearly states that other conditions that mimic this problem must be excluded. One of these is chronic psychiatric disease. This is not equivocal. Must be ex excluded is very, very clear. So theoretically, in order to even begin your study of chronic fatigue syndrome, psychiatric disease is already ruled out. And somehow the medical profession seems to have overlooked that, which is probably about the greatest medical error in their entire history. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm your podcast host, Scott Simpson. Eight-year-old Eric Johnson figured out what was making him very ill. It was the building his family lived in. But instead of listening to Eric, doctors gave him a psychological diagnosis. Maybe autism, they said. In part one of my interview with Eric, he shares how he got healthy through insight into his symptom pattern, and then developing and tweaking his own treatment protocol over the following years. Eric also exposes the federal and local cover-up of infamous illness outbreaks in Nevada. Eric tells how the Center for Disease Control invented the diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome 
to explain the flu-like outbreaks. Mix in big egos and sensationalist media, and that led to words and concepts being twisted so that a physical illness was downplayed and mass hysteria upplayed. The CDC then became complicit in psychologizing the illness in an effort to throw more confusion around the cause of the outbreaks. Meanwhile, Eric was doing his own investigation of the outbreaks and realized that not only was there a viral aspect to chronic fatigue syndrome, but that exposure to toxic black mold was a necessary element. Yet, in spite of Eric's evidence, government and medical institutions did not want to research the role of toxic mold on human health. It is far less costly for government, for healthcare, for the insurance and building industries to label sick and disabled people as fakers and fraudsters than to face the role toxic mold has on human health and its implication in the emergence of chronic fatigue syndrome. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and other podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. If you need the support of a counselor for your own experience with medical error or living with chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. And now, here is part one of my interview with Eric Johnson, Mold Warrior. Please be aware that some people may be triggered by Eric's experience with the healthcare system. I grew up in the Sierra Nevada mountains, about 100 miles south of Lake Tahoe, on a real back roads, actually a stagecoach road, um, in an old hotel that uh, was a historic monument. But unfortunately, even though it was a beautiful place with a stream running past it and pastures all around and an absolutely glorious old hotel, I had a terrible experience with toxic mold. This mold made me extremely ill in a way that I was unable to ever fully recover. And this colored all my experiences after that because pretty much everything I've done has been an effort to get myself better from this toxic mold. And this gave me the ability to recognize the role of toxic mold when the mystery illness emerged in the 1980s. Okay, wow. So you've been sick since you were a kid. Yeah. Uh, So when do you recall the symptoms first onsetting and what were they? 
1964, when my family took over management of this hotel, I was getting nosebleeds, fatigue, rashes, blinding headaches, neurological problems, uh, just major difficulties, often resembling uh, autism. And I was in and out of neurological hospitals, saw many doctors, and none of them could ever figure it out. But I knew by getting away from this, this hotel that uh, I was feeling better. During the summer, in fact, I would stay in a buggy barn. So the rooms that I would otherwise occupy in the hotel would be freed up for guests. And every summer, I was like a normal kid, lots of energy, just everything seemed fine. And then I'd move back into the hotel for the cold winter months and fall apart again. Wow. So what were uh, your family and your physician saying about this, all this during all those years? They were completely baffled. They uh, attributed it to psychological problems, uh, developmental problems, possible. I mean, at one point they were speculating whether I had autism. Uh, they never really did figure it out. So this kind of launched me on the, the quest to study this phenomenon to the best of my ability and find out how many other people were suffering from the same disease. And so when did that quest start? Pretty much uh, 1964. I remember reading uh, a set of Mark Twain novels, which was highly ironic because Mark Twain actually describes this type of illness in the very book that I was reading, Roughing It, where he talked about people from back east who would seek out the Western cure. They'd come out to California and Nevada and get a spectacular recovery from what was then called um, the consumption. Ah, that's what the consumption was. Yeah, that was a vague name for tuberculosis, but actually it referred to any kind of wasting disease. Uh, when tuberculosis was narrowed down to the, the bacterium, then tuberculosis became associated, or consumption became associated specifically with one bacteria. But in the days prior to that discovery, it, it could be any kind of wasting disease. And I believe that a lot of that turns out to be toxic mold illness. Okay, so you're reading a Mark Twain and you're recognizing the... the... Yeah, but, um, when this fellow came out to Lake Tahoe, in fact, to, um, to die from the consumption, after a short time of sleeping out under the stars, he was in such good shape that he was bounding over the mountaintops in perfect health. As Mark Twain said, he came out west to die and made a poor job of it because he completely recovered. So I'm reading this. And I'm realizing that even though it's a beautiful summer day and the, the birds are singing outside, and I'm enthralled by these books. I just love these books. And I really should be outside uh, enjoying the good, healthy sunshine and the, the mountain air. Um, I realized that once I got outside, my energy was restored, the nosebleeds went away, and I was feeling so much better. There was obviously something inside this building 
And then we decided to expand the restaurant in this hotel. We cut through a back wall to install a, a walk-in refrigerator. And opening up the um, wall revealed that it had been insulated with old newspapers, which were covered with black mold. When these newspapers spilled out, we thought we, they might have some historic value because they were so old. And I tried to read them and I completely collapsed at that point. Uh, they had such a profound effect on me that it was clear that the black mold on these newspapers was the, the source of my illness. So I was able to make the connection to mold, at least black mold, all the way back then. Wow, so how old are you at that point? Eight years old. Eight years old and you've, you've connected the dots. Yeah. Wow. So I was pretty wild to spend as much time outside, um, live in that buggy barn through the, um, the stagecoaches and the, uh, the buggies were kept if I could. But unfortunately, I had to move back into the hotel uh, for the winter months and it was just devastating to me. And this pattern continued. And I wound up, my family wound up moving to Lake Tahoe in uh, the early 1970s. And I went to a, a high school about 25 miles away from Lake Tahoe. It was a long bus ride. And the same effect was present in this school, at the entrance to the school, in fact. Most of the people going to the school were aware that something was wrong, that uh, it was having an effect. A, a lot of teachers, a lot of students, learn to avoid the front entrance to the school by either walking around to the side or holding their breath and running through the front of the school as quickly as possible. And I graduated from this school, still sick with the same problems, still searching for answers. And as it turns out, this was the very school that served as the launch point for the famous chronic fatigue syndrome. There was a cluster of teachers there that all in this one room up at the front of the school who got a flu-like illness uh, from which they simply could not recover. And the curious part for me was that the teachers in the other rooms or in the dean's office or people working in the library, they caught the same strange flu that was going around. And um, they recovered from it quite normally. It was only the people in the presence of this toxic mold that went on to develop the chronic malady for which the CDC was called. This is described in Hillary Johnson's book, Osler's Web, on uh, page 25. Is this the Truckee? That's the one, yes. Okay. And uh, Truckee's the name of the school? That, that's it, Truckee High School. So we don't get in trouble with the school. They put a lot of work into cleaning it up and now it feels fine to me. Oh, you've been back? Yes, I go back there all the time. Wow. And I so, graduated from the school in 1972 okay. and realized that I was still being highly affected uh, no matter where I went by a certain specific type of mold. And I thought, well, I'll join the army. That'll, that'll toughen me up. Um, Sorry, Eric, <laughs> what was the logic behind that? 
Well, I figured that the going through basic training and um, having a, an extremely vigorous life would either inure me to the uh, whatever weakness this was that was doing this to me. Basically, I just wanted to be as, as healthy and active as possible, have adventures, and I thought perhaps that the people in the military might understand this problem. Military doctors, it was possible. Anyway, this was a, a great adventure, and so I joined the Army and um, wound up overseas in a bunker that was built to be Hitler's uh, command center for the invasion of France. So it was an old concrete reinforced, musty kind of nasty building. And in 1976, the basement armory flooded and black mold grew all over the cardboard, the boxes down in this basement and my entire unit got sick. And everybody fell apart in vastly different ways. I was affected probably as, as much as anybody. A, a lot of people got sick. In fact, we actually had a couple of uh, fatalities, especially the guy, the, um, the people who were working down in the armory, they were the sickest. Wow, so the Tell me more about that. There are a couple of fatalities. And what sort of symptoms were you guys experiencing? Um, it was all the same thing I experienced in the old hotel. Uh, the rashes, the nosebleeds, the inability to recover from infections. If you had a cold, it was the worst cold you ever had. If um, one guy had uh, hepatitis and it reactivated, and within a short period of time, he died. We had uh, several cases of cancer. The staff sergeant that was working in the armory, he had some kind of neurological problem. They thought it was probably brain tumors. They took him out of there on a stretcher. They uh, medevaced him back to the States for treatment and we never heard of him again. Long about this time, this is when the uh, swine flu epidemic was, was going around and a strange flu hit my, my unit and my Army unit kind of made history for being the first nuclear missile unit to be removed from active readiness for rate of illness. Nobody could recover from this flu. And because I already knew about the mold and how it was affecting me, it seemed obvious that the reason why this flu had affected us so badly and not the other units around us was the difference of the toxic mold. Oh, okay. So they're like compounding their effect yeah, on the it, body. There was something specific about this type of exposure that was much more devastating than um, the, the flu by itself or the flu in conjunction with chemical exposures or just a general immune weakness or diabetes or anything else that somebody might have. It was the combination of the flu plus this mold that really had the worst sort of effect. And I got out of the army because I, I couldn't take facing another situation like that. I didn't want to wind up in another unit where I had no control over um, whether or not mold could light up somewhere and I couldn't leave. 
I was so sick in this unit that I would sneak out to the motor pool at night and sleep in the back of the five ton just to try to get a break from this stuff. So I got out of the army in 1978 and I was down in the Bay Area still being able to control my illness by spending most of my time outside. And that's when I noticed a very strange uh, illness comparable to mine move into the Bay Area. The same kind of thing, the flu that never ends. People would get a flu and they simply could not recover. And naturally, I wanted to find out if there was a correlation to the mold. So I started asking these people and going with them to their, their houses or to their places of employment and finding out they did indeed have this as a factor in their illness. Because you could uh, detect it just by entering the environment? Yes. Yes, I'm that sensitive. So I was watching this um, strange flu-like illness become more and more prevalent in the Bay Area in the early 1980s. And then finally I ran into some more of this, this black mold and it completely put me under the power curve. I became so sick that I really couldn't function at my work anymore. What kind of work were you doing? Well, I was a hang glider instructor. Oh, cool. That's yeah, uh, yeah you'd need to be on the ball for that, eh? Yeah, and I, I, it was great because I was outside all, all day long. So it, it kept me very healthy. I was running. I was as active as could possibly be. And the RV that I was living in got moldy. And that really finished me off. And I was forced to go back up to my family at Lake Tahoe to take care of me. And I wound up, um, I, I was too sick to really figure this out on my own. So I needed a doctor. So my mother and my brother helped physically carry me to the closest doctor's office, which happened to be Dr. Paul Cheney. And at the time he was just a country doctor that uh, he wasn't known for anything. This, this um, nothing had happened uh, to make his life interesting yet. So he was very sympathetic and he listed all my complaints and he took me very seriously, but he didn't have a clue. And eventually in November of 1984, he, he said, we're at an impasse. You've um, exhausted all my testing. Um, I, I've got no leads. And he suggested that I go down to the big clinics down in Reno and search for answers there. So that's what I did. And this exact same time, a strange flu moved into Lake Tahoe. And it was absolutely devastating. It was the worst flu anybody had ever heard of. It was pretty common to how flus run through every year, but this one was so bad that it actually got a name, the Truckee Crud. That's, that's where it was first noted and uh, was in Truckee. And the doctors became aware of it there before it moved into Lake Tahoe and then in Incline Village, where it became known as the Tahoe Crud and then the Incline Village Crud. 
And when people didn't recover, finally, Dr. Cheney um, decided it was time to call the CDC for help. Uh, and for folks who aren't familiar with that acronym, what is the CDC? The uh, Center for Diseases Control in Atlanta, Georgia. And what precipitated Dr. Cheney's call to the CDC was a group of teachers at Truckee High School that all got sick in the same room. They got this flu and they simply did not recover. Now I remembered from my from being a graduate of Truckee High School how that area of the school affected us. So I suggested to Dr. Cheney that he looked in, into the mold. But at the same time, we had clusters at um, another school, North Tahoe High School, and at a local casino. So it seemed that the idea that uh, there was another component to it was overruled and the viral factor was, was really the important part. And that is what Dr. Cheney wanted to pursue. But I went to these other locations and sure enough, all the people that got sick and could not recover were in the presence of the same toxic mold. So in my mind, this elevated the, uh, the mold to that of critical cofactor because if you don't have this additional exposure, you would more than likely recover normally. So the CDC came out and they were completely baffled by this illness. They recognized the illness was occurring in sick buildings, but they had no idea that toxic mold was a factor at this time. In fact, toxic mold hadn't even been discovered and wasn't in the, the medical literature. Really? Yeah. So lacking any rational basis for what was causing sick buildings, they um, decided to create this new syndrome and um, follow up on the basis of using this research instrument as a start point for further study. Problem was that this Tahoe flu was so scary and made so many people sick, just as Hillary Johnson describes in her book, that the uh, local chamber of commerce was, was being wiped out, where our economy was in ruins. People were so scared by the Tahoe flu that they were refusing to come to Lake Tahoe. Oh, and Tahoe is a uh, tourist town? Very much so. Yeah, we, we depended on the uh, ski industry and when the um, in this winter, that's that's where all of our money was. People converged from all over the place to do their skiing, spend lots of money, and that completely disappeared. One out of six businesses went bankrupt. People were canceling reservations. Lake Tahoe was becoming notorious as ground zero for this mystery illness, and it was such a, a problem that the um, visitor bureau decided to put pressure on the CDC to trivialize the outbreak, 
to restore the confidence in the tourist industry of coming back to Lake Tahoe. And this is directly why they chose a trivializing name and didn't include any of the immune abnormalities in the CFS definition. And for folks who aren't familiar, CFS stands for? Chronic Fatigue Syndrome. Yeah, the uh, CDC and uh, NIH, Dr. Steven Strauss, were actually quite interested in the uh, Tahoe malady in the beginning. And NIH is for? National Institutes of Health. So they're the researching group. Yeah, they uh, control the, the funding for studying illnesses. The CDC is, does the investigative work and the NIH does the follow-up. When this um, strange illness was first traveling across the United States in the 1980s, it manifested as a reactivation of the Epstein-Barr virus, which is the common kissing disease, which nearly everybody has, 96% of the population. When the Tahoe outbreak began, the testing for Epstein-Barr virus was very crude. It was a monospot test, just a basic antibody detection test, uh, just to see if you've got the presence of a proliferation of the antibodies that would respond to the Epstein-Barr virus. But it was very nonspecific, and it basically only told you if you had an elevation of these antibodies, and that was it. And when Dr. Uh, Peterson and Dr. Cheney read about the chronic Epstein-Barr virus syndrome that was being studied at this, this time, they applied this crude monospot test and everybody came up negative. So it appeared that the Epstein-Barr virus was ruled out for the Tahoe disease. And just about this time, a new antibody test, a new EBV serology test was, was unveiled. And Dr. Shady and Dr. Peterson applied this test and it reversed the earlier monospot test. People did have elevated antibodies to Epstein-Barr virus. And that's what they called the CDC and explained uh, our earlier assessment uh, was an error it appears that these people actually do that do have the Epstein-Barr virus disease. And Dr. Gary Holmes, the CDC epidemiologist, who was in contact with uh, Dr. Cheney, said, well, if this is true, then your outbreak would completely rewrite the profile of Epstein-Barr virus because it's acting in a new way. It's acting contagious. It's, acts, it's infecting people with a very short incubation period rather than the month-long um, period that they we're used to. And if, if it's true that the Epstein-Barr virus has mutated in such a way, we need to find this out. And that was the reason for the CDC investigation was to determine whether or not the Tahoe outbreak was an outbreak of some new form of Epstein-Barr virus. And people are very confused about that because they consider that the, the CDC was strictly called to look into a mystery illness outbreak. 
but actually their, their mission was very narrow. They were there to determine if this fit the profile of their existing Epstein-Barr virus hypothesis. And when Dr. Gary Holmes sat down in the basement of uh, Dr. Cheney, Dr. Peterson's office, pouring over records, that's the reason why they were so interested in records and not in examining people, is because they wanted to see if what they saw in the EBV serology testing that had been done could explain whether or not Epstein-Barr virus had, had mutated. And the results were extremely confusing because some people who had the apparent chronic illness did have elevated EBV titers. They did fit the, um, the Epstein-Barr virus disease, while others did not. About two-thirds of the people that Dr. Gene Dr. Peterson has identified as being chronically ill were a perfect fit for the Epstein-Barr virus illness, but about you know, one, one third were not. So in confusion, Dr. Gary Holmes packed up and left, and he made a um, offhand remark to a newspaper reporter where he said, we're just not seeing evidence for an epidemic here. Well, what he was referring to was an epidemic of the EBV disease. He wasn't saying that there was no illness, no outbreak. He was just saying that this wasn't, wasn't EBV, or at least the evidence was not compelling at this time. And the newspapers that were already panic-stricken over this Tahoe flu picked up on that and they launched into Cheney Peterson saying, you've created a false epidemic of hysteria. The CDC has negated your findings. They've agreed that there's absolutely nothing going on here. And Dr. Cheney, who was uh, quite certain of his test results, went back to the newspapers and said, well, they're wrong. I can stand up in a court of law and prove 90 cases of Epstein-Barr virus right now, which obviously uh, was an insult to Dr. Gary Holmes. So Dr. Cheney was fighting for his professional life. Dr. Gary Holmes felt that he had been insulted. And that's the reason why he declined to return to Lake Tahoe. His ego. <laughs> yeah. Really, the, uh, the whole chronic fatigue syndrome arose out of a mistake. It was this misunderstanding of whether or not the, the, the Center for Disease Control was seeing anything wrong, as opposed to whether or not they just saw an outbreak of Epstein-Barr virus. They, they were very clear that something was going on. Both John Kaplan and Gary Holmes freely admitted that people were very, very sick and something needed to be studied here. And Dr. Holmes is probably one of the most maligned, misunderstood people out of this entire syndrome because the, the story got around that the CDC intended from the start to suppress our, our outbreak, put a stop to the EBV illness, but that's, that's really, that was not their goal at this time. That may have emerged later, but Dr. Gary Holmes was not responsible for that. He was actually a good guy. 
one about the same time, Dr. Cheney and Dr. Peterson sent our blood down to the Gallo lab where they identified a, a brand newly discovered virus. It was called HBLV, human B cell lymphotropic virus. It was renamed several years later, HHV6 alpha, human herpes, herpes virus 6 alpha, which was an especially devastating neurotropic virus that was observed to wipe out B cells, the exact opposite of Epstein-Barr virus, which causes a proliferation of B cells. This explained why we didn't have a positive on the monospot test. We had a different virus that was doing the exact opposite of what the Epstein-Barr virus would do. Oh, so even though they're both herpes uh, viruses, uh, the Epstein-Barr um, and the HHV6 had the opposite effects on the, that one measure. Exactly. This is described in Osler's web. It's called the cytopathic effect. So when people talk about the chronic fatigue syndrome being developed for the overall um, Epstein-Barr virus phenomenon, actually that's, that's not the case. What scared the CDC into action and the reason for the convening of the Holmes Committee was the fear that they were seeing an entirely new illness that was based on this HHV6-alpha. And this being 1984-ish with the emergence of the global AIDS pandemic, they would be of heightened awareness of new viruses. Absolutely. One has to recall that in the aftermath of, of HIV AIDS, because this was right after the discovery of the HIV virus, syndrome is actually a very scary word. Um, it was associated with a very bad disease at that time. That's right, because so, AIDS stands for Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. Yeah. So it didn't seem to be all that horrible to call it a syndrome at that time, because a syndrome was clearly understood as a research instrument that was meant to be used to follow up on any unknown disease. It, it wasn't really an insult. That didn't develop until later when the association with the words chronic fatigue caused people to confuse it with a behavioral pattern of tiredness and persistent fatigue. And as the uh, confusion spread over why the chronic fatigue syndrome was coined and people lost track of the original evidence, um, the scare went right out of it. Everybody who read about the Lake Tahoe incident and knew of our in, uh, evidence was very scared of it. They took it extremely seriously. It took about six years before the memory of what had happened to fade to the point where people began thinking of chronic fatigue syndrome as nothing more as uh, a big problem of middle-aged women who uh, can't get their life together. In the so there's sort of two incidents where the media 
has played a pivotal role. One, when they misreported what the CDC was saying as they were leaving Incline Village, and then later uh, propagating a psychological narrative for chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah, it was very interesting how the CDC managed to promote a rumor that this was a psychological illness. When, if you examine the Holmes 1988 chronic fatigue syndrome definition, it very clearly states that other conditions that mimic this problem must be excluded. One of these is chronic psychiatric disease. This is not equivocal. Must be ex excluded is very, very clear. So theoretically, in order to even begin your study of chronic fatigue syndrome, psychiatric disease is already ruled out. And somehow the medical profession seems to have overlooked that. So they didn't read the instructions or the criteria in the chronic fatigue syndrome, which is probably about the greatest medical error in their entire history. Wow, yeah, that's, uh, that's a good point. Yeah, because the knock-on effect has impacted millions of people globally. Yeah, the uh, chronic fatigue syndrome criteria is like an algorithm. It instructs to rule out a whole laundry list of possible things that might be confused. And this is where the medical profession really dropped the ball. As Dr. Gary Holmes said, once you've ruled out every known thing that could possibly cause this pattern of unexplained fatigue and, and swollen glands and the Epstein-Barr virus aberrant profile, if there are any abnormalities left over, look into them. So there you have it. It's really not that bad of a, a definition because if you rule out every possible known thing, and only look for something that has an abnormality, then it would lead you straight to any unique medical entity that would be left over. And it, as it turns out, there is an abnormality in chronic fatigue syndrome that stands out like a sore throne. It's, it's the low erythrocyte sedimentation rate. Oh, <clears throat> say that again, please. It's a low, a pathologically low erythrocyte sedimentation rate. What does that mean for the layman? Well, there's a very old and very crude blood test. In fact, it's the first blood test ever devised. It's merely fresh whole blood in a graded tube that's allowed to settle for an hour. And as the red cells settle out of the plasma, the rate at which the, the plasma appears at the, the top of this graded tube is your measurement. It's in millimeters per hour. Most people, most normal people, the, uh, the clear plasma at the top uh, for an adult will be seven millimeters per hour or more. Uh, only in, in, it's very rare to have no sedimentation whatsoever. In fact, a zero sed rate is only known in about five diseases, all of them extremely serious. 
which include um, congestive heart failure and sickle cell anemia. Wow. So theoretically, if a doctor had seen a zero SED rate, you should have asked, why on earth do you have this incredibly low SED rate? This is only seen in, in red cell platelet diseases and followed up on that. And if this had been done, as per Dr. Gary Holmes' instructions, it would have led to the low SED rate phenomenon, which has been reported by Dr. Byron Hyde to have been one of the principal abnormalities in myalgic encephalomyelitis. Wow, this is so interesting. So just to make sure I have this clear in my head, Eric, so it sounds like you're saying that what was happening in Lake Tahoe and Incline Village was this HHV6 in combination with uh, moldy buildings, and those were the folks who never recovered from the flu. Yes. Okay. So you've had this contention since it sort of happened in the 1984-ish, and did folks listen to you back then? No. One day in April 1986, Dr. Cheney called me into his office and he was very excited. He, he points at my um, medical records, my EBV serology test, and there was something very clearly on his mind. He, he's pointing at my test going, this is incredible. And it's like, okay, what is it? He goes, your, uh, your test re results just came back. You are EBV negative. And I was horribly disappointed because about this time, we decided that the Epstein-Barr virus, if, if not a driving force in the illness, the, the major cause was at least a, a factor that would, could be treated by a cyclovir. There was a, a good potential because we had done uh, some preliminary uh, testing with the cyclovir that showed if we knocked this, this virus down, people could get better. And all of a sudden, he's telling me that I don't even have this, this virus at all. I'm completely negative, which removes my options for treatment. And then Dr. Cheney explained something to him. He said the CDC's working hypothesis for this is that it is caused by Epstein-Barr virus, that this has been reactivated due to lifestyle factors or um, alcoholism or smoking or drugs, that it's whatever, for whatever reason, you did something to yourself to cause this EBV to reactivate, and that is how they're treating this illness. Um, wealthy Chicago, uh, Chicago entrepreneur named Ted Van Zelst had a daughter who'd been diagnosed with this EBV illness, and he was trying to break the CDC out of blaming EBV. And Dr. Cheney had been looking for evidence that the Epstein-Barr virus was not even involved, was, was not even a factor in this illness. And he said, you are EBV negative. I need your blood. And that's basically how I became the first prototype for the new syndrome. Dr. Cheney used my blood to help demonstrate that EBV not even being present. Uh, it's not necessary for the development of the chronic illness, 
but the, the HHV6 virus was. So it was a massive paradigm shift where in one fell swoop, we completely overruled the presence of Epstein-Barr virus and substituted another much more scary virus. So if the Holmes Committee had really wanted to um, clarify what was going on, they would have called it HBLV disease because this was the, the factor that scared them into convening the Holmes Committee and creating a research instrument to follow up on this. So I, uh, I thought about Dr. Cheney's request that I, I serve as a prototype for this new syndrome. And at first I, I didn't want to because I thought it was going to be a pain in the butt and a grave responsibility. And Dr. Cheney said, well, you have to because you're the only member of the original outbreak, the original 160, that is EBV negative. So your case ties the, the state of EBV negative with the specific outbreak investigated by the CDC. Your case ties it together. And he explained that really I, I have a duty to the patient community to, to step up and do this. And I said, Dr. Cheney, I really can't because you know I've got this mold problem. And this will interfere with your concepts. He goes, well, don't worry about that. We'll, we'll work it all when, when researchers come. Because right now, you're a perfect example of this, this new malady, this, this syndrome. And uh, when researchers come, then we can, we can settle all this. And I continued on for a while thinking, well, this isn't really right because uh, this other factor is really going to complicate things. And then it occurred to me, wait a minute, if all these clusters did occur in moldy buildings and I've accompanied other people with the chronic illness to these buildings and watch how it affects them, that means this is a critical factor. And I can help explain this um, for whatever reason, whatever's causing this, this, mold, this type of mold reactivity is such a strong component that it needs to be factored into the, the syndrome so that at least it's not a confounder. So I agreed to participate as a prototype on that basis. Little did I realize that no researchers would ever come back to investigate our outbreak and work out these details. They defined their um, research into chronic fatigue syndrome as talking to Dr. Cheney and Dr. Peterson who weren't really interested in the sick building factor. So their knowledge of what was going on stopped at that point. And here we are 35 years later. How have things changed with the CDC? Well, the CDC capitalized on the confusion to bury the Tahoe outbreak and all the evidence and keep it buried. Um, I believe that for about four years, they weren't certain if their trivialization would have taken effect because all it would have taken for uh, people to resolve this confusion was to come and do some basic epidemiology. And this wasn't done. 
1992, the CDC saw that the, the trivialization had worked perfectly and people felt there was no more evidence to be gathered. So they felt free to start working on their 1994 Fukuda redefinition. And if you examine the differences between the Holmes definition and the Fukuda, one has to wonder why they went to the trouble. Because what does it do? What really changed? Uh, in terms of the description of the illness and the criteria, it may have been slightly more simplified, but what, what does that get us? What was the point of it? Well, the real point was that the Fukuda definition wasn't based on a very scary outbreak that you can go back and verify. The sole point of, of redefining the disease was to put distance between chronic fatigue syndrome and the original entity that it was based on to help keep it in maximum confusion. Ah, okay, so the Holmes definition emerged out of the 1984 outbreaks. Um, and then they, there was this move toward a psychological narrative. So they did the 92 Fukuda uh, definition of chronic fatigue syndrome, which, like you say, separated it from, the, from its origin. And it also loosened up on the psychiatric exclusion. The uh, Holmes definition was very, very clear on that. Must be excluded. Well, thanks to Eric Johnson for sharing his life's journey through the healthcare system and how he regained his health in spite of that same healthcare system. In part two of my interview with Eric, he will tell more about how he concluded toxic mold was the missing piece of the outbreak puzzle in Nevada. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and other podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. If you need the support of a counselor for your own experience with medical error or living with chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thank you for listening. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.